Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to, de- not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying of the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one use it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Part of the reason why I have made a shift the last few years to actually preach through sections of Scripture is that it keeps us tethered to the biblical text. The text is relevant to us, and when we look at the text and talk about what the text is saying, it keeps us from going into areas that we constantly go into. Nearly every preacher I know, and I'm sure I'm no different, uh, has particular certain subjects they like to talk about. And it's easy to, if you don't move through different texts and work through the text, it's easy to become a one-horse preacher. And, and there's, in some sense, that that's commendable. Uh, everybody needs to have a theme, needs to have something that, uh, that they focus on. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who is my favorite author, uh, his son said to him one time, he said, Dad, or he said about his dad, he said, my dad has had one sermon, preached one sermon his entire life. And he meant it as a compliment, and he kind of gave the background with what it was. And he said, whatever Dad preaches, whatever the subject is, the essence, uh, the, the overtone of that is, is one sermon. Uh, and, but when we work through different texts, it keeps us from <clears throat> doing that uh, in an unhealthy way, and it forces us into lanes that we may not <clears throat> normally travel, that we may not normally go into. It keeps a single verse of context from being a single verse of Scripture from being taken out of context. <coughs> it's, it's really dangerous to, it's, we call it proof texting, where we will uh, look at one verse and say, you know, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Well, that verse has a context, and you need to understand uh, what, what that context is. 
and there's a lot of verses throughout Scripture uh, that you know we call it bumper sticker religion. You take one Scripture and we'll know that Scripture meant something within the context that it was written. And so working through larger passages of, of text keeps us from taking Scripture out of context and helps us not misread Scripture. God speaks to us through three ways, and we want Him to talk to all of us. And God talks to all of us through three ways. One is through His Spirit, two is through His Word, and three is through a preacher. Uh, ministry does and can and should speak to people on behalf of God. But the Bible is what keeps the voice that you hear from His Spirit and the person of God, the preacher, it keeps all those things balanced and in center because if the preacher says something that doesn't align with the Bible, the preacher's wrong. End of story, no more discussion, it's just that simple. Uh, and that is the Bible properly understood. If you think the Spirit of God is telling you something and it disagrees with Scripture, that wasn't the Spirit of God. God's Spirit's never going to contradict His Word. This book is God-breathed. It is the Spirit of God in writing. It is alive. And we want to see God's glory transform our lives through His Holy Word. We are transformed according to 2 Corinthians 3 by being exposed to God's glory. And this happens by being exposed to God's Spirit and God's Word. So what I'm reading this morning is one of the books of what we call the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus. And Paul is the author of all three of these letters. He's writing them to Timothy and he's writing them to Titus. And the grouping of these letters together, uh, it's a fairly recent invention over the last few hundred years to call these the pastoral epistles. It wasn't like Paul said, hey, I'm going to write these things called the pastoral epistles. We've looked at them and said they're letters to pastors and thus we call them the pastoral epistles because Paul is writing to a church leader or to a pastor right, rather than in a lot of his other letters where he's writing letters to the entire church. He'll write the book of Ephesians is to the church that is at Ephesus. But First and Second Timothy and Titus, he's writing those to church leadership. And it's because of this that these books have been neglected somewhat uh, in terms of the sermons preached from them. We, we hear volumes of sermons on the writings of the Apostle Paul, but most of those sermons come from letters to the church. We don't normally hear sermons come from First and Second Timothy and Titus, but they do have a great relevance to us as a church. Paul is writing to pastors about matters related to the congregation, uh, matters of doctrine, church leadership, right living, all of these are contained in these pastoral epistles. And it is interesting that when you read through these letters that the issues that the culture and society faced and struggled with in the early church very much mirror our own 21st century struggles and issues. One of the fundamental things we need to know about the Bible is that these words were not written to us. That's when we're talking about reading the Bible rightly and understanding the Bible correctly, you've got to understand that it was not written to us, but the Spirit of God does speak to us through these words. Uh, it wasn't written to us, but they were written for our edification. We can grow from them, but to understand them, uh, we need to understand how that original audience would have uh, understood what Paul was saying, and this is true with any text in the Bible. One of the most important questions you can ask reading the Bible when you read the text is, if I put myself in those people's place, 
how would they have understood it? That's, that is part of a conservative rather than a liberal way of understanding the text. Uh, liberal Christianity uh, will say that the text is open to a lot of different meanings, that once the, the words left the author's pen that you can interpret them lots of different ways. But a conservative, evangelical, uh, biblical, fundamental way of understanding the text is how do the original readers understand what was being said. And <clears throat> part of being a spirit-filled, biblically conservative, evangelical church is the belief that we can know what the intent of the biblical author was and we can know what the Spirit of God is saying to the church today. We can know truth. And God is still, through His Spirit, speaking today through His Word. So let's begin with the idea that 2,000 years ago, life looked very different than it does today. <clears throat> and it's, it, it's difficult for us to relate to that because just as everyday life was different, so was their church life. There was no platform. Most corporate worship was done in people's houses. And even the houses looked very different. It wasn't like they were in houses like what we have. Uh, there was no band. There were no drums, no microphones, no youth ministry, no Sunday school, no multi-million dollar budgets, no PowerPoints, no preaching from an iPad, no texting in church. It was a very different world. Now, I am of a little bit different persuasion than my friends uh, when <clears throat> I would assert that the early church's model was no more biblical than ours. It wasn't that they were trying to lay out some model on how to do church. It was that they were doing church. They were living out their life and their worship in the context of their culture just like we are. It's the, the, the house church movement gets its driving force from looking back at the first century modeling saying, well, because they worshiped house to house, that's the only way that we should do it. And there is a movement like that. Even in America, it's a, <clears throat> there is a a movement that says we should worship house to house because that's how the early church did it. I would contend that the early church was living out their faith and worshiping in the only way that they knew how. The New Testament is largely silent on what the ideal church model should look like. And I would contend that the silence is not a weakness, but it's rather a tremendous strength that empowers the gospel to not only be countercultural, but to be transcultural, meaning that it is <clears throat> relevant and adaptable to the context of every single generation and people group in the entire world. There were other things in the church that were the same as they are today. Number one, God. God was the same God 2,000 years ago in the church as He is today. <clears throat> God is not 2,000 years older than He was 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> God doesn't age. He is eternal. He's the same God. The, the moving and the working of the Holy Spirit, that is the same. What the early church considered to be Scripture is the exact same text that we use today for the Old Testament. And for those who were using the, the Greek translations, we're not the only ones that have to work with translations. The early church that much of them spoke Greek, they were not reading Hebrew Bibles. They were reading a translation that was translated in Greek about 200 years before Jesus. And it was translated in Alexandria, Egypt, because you had all these Greek-speaking people who couldn't read Hebrew. And so if we, want to, if we want the people of faith, even before Christ, to read the Old Testament, they've got to be able to read it in their language. And so much of the New Testament church is reading their scriptures in a translation. And we still have that translation today, word for word. It was even ordered the same. Uh, the Hebrew Bible is ordered from Genesis to 2 Chronicles. It's a different order. But uh, in the translation that they had in the early church, they re 
organized it and, and reoriented the Old Testament to where it flowed just like our Old Testament flows today. So that is something that is exactly the same. We can take comfort in that. When we think about the early church, we can think about the early church worshiping and understanding and reading text in the Bible just like we do. Think about all the people that you know today, that you work with, that you connect with in life. If you get in a time travel machine, you can go to any era in history and culture and you'll meet the exact same people in that society at any time. They'll have different names and faces, but they'll be the same people. The guy that is a pain in the neck on the job, he has existed throughout all time and society in different names and faces. They, there's only a handful of people in the world repeated over and over again. And so I, I lay this groundwork so that we have a better idea of who Paul is writing to. It's, it's people just like us. It's uh, with a God that has not changed and a culture that, yes, is very, very different than we are today. Now, the Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter to Timothy. The Apostle Paul first meets Timothy in what is now modern-day Turkey. And Timothy has this good reputation among all the churches in the area. And the Apostle Paul, he makes Timothy part of his ministry team and he sends him back to help churches. Timothy goes to Corinth, to Thessalonica, to Philippi. But finally in Ephesus is where Timothy settles and he leads this network of local churches for we think at least 30 years. He's a young man when he starts and he is kind of the pastor of Ephesus, the bishop in Ephesus for over 30 years. Now we gather from the book of Hebrews that Timothy went to prison at least once for preaching the message that this blasphemous, troublemaking, rebellious, and in their minds dead Jew named Jesus, who didn't really rise from the dead, he's preaching the message that in reality he's the Son of God who came to establish God's kingdom on the earth. And he goes, we think he goes to jail for that at least once. Because this is how you were viewed in the first century if you were a Christian. You were part of a cult. You were a cult that worshipped a dead guy that was executed by the government for a crime that was legitimately punishable by death. There was no historic Jesus in the, the first century church. He was a recent figure. People had met him. People knew him. You may have not met Jesus, but say, I, I have a friend who knew Jesus. Uh, they say he was a pretty good guy. He just had this, these crazy ideas. So he wasn't this historic figure like we think of him today. People knew him. So for Timothy to receive this letter that we now have in our Bibles had to have been an incredible blessing and encouragement to a young pastor named Timothy. So we read in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God and our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul does not show a lot of affection in his letters. Paul's not a warm, fuzzy guy, uh, at least not in his letters, uh, but here he does. He says, Timothy, you're my true child in the faith. He considers Timothy a son in the gospel. Being part of God's kingdom does create beautiful, godly, holy relations with people for the rest of your life. Some of the greatest relations that I've had in my life that people I've known have come because of faith, have come because of my belief and trust in God and their belief and love and trust for God. And it creates a, a mutual bond. Fellowship is not having coffee with another believer. That's the context of the fellowship. Atheists can sit down and break bread together. Uh, they, can, they can connect, they can have friendships. 
that's not the context of the fellowship itself. The fellowship is your fellowshipping together with God as the common person that is in the midst of you. That's what makes biblical fellowship what it is. I have said it for years, and I can't remember where I first heard it. I think it was T.F. Tenney that I heard say this, but uh, I've said it for years, that everybody in your life, you need three people in your life. You need Paul, a mentor, a parent in the gospel. Everybody needs a Paul in their life, like Timothy has. And you need a Barnabas, a peer, an equal, a friend uh, that's on level ground. Paul has mentors Timothy, but then Paul has Barnabas. And then you need a Timothy. Timothy had, uh, Paul had his Timothy and Timothy had his Paul. You need a Timothy, uh, somebody that you can mentor, somebody that you can put yourself into. And you need to spend your life having these relationships. If I have these people who are my mentors, these people who are my peers, and these people who I'm putting something into. And I think this is really the context of how biblical discipleship works, is that we are being discipled by somebody, we're fellowshipping with people, and we're discipling other people. And it's, the, it's a biblical model of how to disciple people. So Paul writes in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So he's telling Timothy, you need to stay there. I know you've been at these other cities, but this is where you're, you're going to stay in Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul is charging Timothy to stay at Ephesus, not just to preach right doctrine, but to prevent other people from preaching false doctrine. Because it matters what you preach, it matters what you believe. Belief produces behavior. There are people who on the surface, you look at their lives and you say, well, those people, they don't really believe what they believe because of their actions. But the reality is there is a much deeper seated belief that underlies that, that what they really truly believe. This is what they profess, but what they really believe is what is driving their, their actions. You can always tell somebody's true belief system based upon what they act out in their lives. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy to fight. Fight false doctrine. Early in the church, in Timothy's time, there was already these really bad ideas about Jesus. The divinity of Christ was being questioned. Was He really God? And Timothy deals with this false doctrine that the resurrection of the dead and the return of Christ has already happened. Now we know the resurrection of the dead happened, but there was a group of people early on in the church that said, actually, Christ has already come back. He's already returned the second time. And yes, Jesus did establish His kingdom on the earth with His per first appearing, but there is yet another coming of Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't use meaningless phrases. He opens verse 1 by saying, Jesus Christ is our hope. That's how he opens the letter. Jesus is our hope. The church in Ephesus was living in the last days, defined biblically as the period of time between the first and the second coming of Christ. And the New Testament is filled with language about the hope that we have as the people of God because Jesus is coming again. The only reason people have hope in Christ today is because Christ is going to return. And the entire idea of the return of Christ is surrounded by the idea of hope. And Timothy is dealing with false doctrines that contradict all of that. And those doctrines would have left the church in Ephesus without any hope. And I would say this, beware any idea from the Bible that somebody puts forward if it doesn't offer hope. 
because the Bible, the entire message of the Bible is a, is a message of hope. The church has always had to guard herself against heresy. Uh, Philip Towner gave an excellent definition of heresy. He said, heresy is to the church what treason is to the state. And there are a lot of ideas that we can disagree on and still be in unity as believers. Nobody's going to believe exactly the same thing about everything. If you require that, you will end up being a denomination of one. Uh, so there are things that we can disagree on and still be in unity because not everything is primary and not every hill is worth dying on, but some are. And anything that subtracts from the deity of Jesus Christ is heretical. It is a hill worth dying on. And anything that says there is any other way to be saved other than through the redemptive work of Christ is heretical. That's why churches have to fight against the idea of there's a two-track way of salvation, which has been real popular the last 200 years in some circles. Uh, that. Gentiles, people who aren't Jews, they can come to faith through Jesus Christ, but Jews, well, they can be saved because of their Jewishness. And that is a belief system in some areas that Jews wouldn't have to come through Christ. Say, no, every, every person in this era of time that will be saved will come through Jesus Christ. Paul is charging Timothy to protect the church from false doctrine because it is the aim of the Satan to deceive the people of God. In Revelation 12, Satan does two things. And we see this all through the Bible and John kind of sums it up in Revelation. Number one, he accuses the saints before God. The Bible says he does it day and night. He is the accuser of God's people. And number two, he deceives the world. He's an accuser and he's a deceiver. And a person is never more like the devil and aligned with Satan's purposes than when they accuse the people of God or when they are deceiving the people of God. They're being used by Satan. And Paul continues to write, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul says there are three things that I'm trying to accomplish by charging you to protect the people of God. Love, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Because I'm not any of those things without God. Without God's Spirit, without His Word, without His glory, without His grace, I don't tick any of those boxes. By default, I, we, by default, have a mind that can be easily intoxicated with this world. By default, we have a spirit that is easily turned hard. By default, we can have a heart that is easily full of deceitfulness and wickedness, and it is our default position according to Scripture. We are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And Paul's aim, his goal of charging Timothy, is to protect truth and fight false doctrine. And that is not at all just an intellectual, mental exercise. It's because those false ideas produce bad behavior. Paul uses a lot in his writings, he uses a lot of language about aiming, hitting the target. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. He uses this language throughout his writings. Uh, the, the verse that talks about people swerving from these this, in Paul's writing, this isn't swerving like we would talk about swerving. Like I was driving down the road and I swerved to miss a cat and I put my car in the ditch and totaled it. I actually know a lady who did this. Um, she had this great 
probably nearly 20-year-old Nissan Maxima that she was so proud of. Um, her husband kept it in pristine condition for it. I'd always com comment to her, I'd say, man, your car always looks so good. And it was a, a kind of early 90s Maxima, but it was just... Um, it was just a nice car. I mean, it was just something about that. Even though it was older, it didn't really have that much value, but it was just a... And one day, uh, she came to work and uh, she said, you wouldn't believe it. She said, I totaled my car. I said, how'd you total your car? She said, I was on the way to work and I, there was a cat in the road and I swerved to miss the cat and I put it in a ditch. And of course, a car that old, it didn't really take that much to total it. Uh, so this is not what Paul's talking about, swerving to miss something. Uh, it doesn't mean what we think it means. It means to miss the mark. It, it's the word that you're, you're aiming for something and you, you're off. You hit something else. You, it swerved. That's what it means here in this context, to miss what is being aimed for. Paul is telling us that when people who teach false doctrine, what happens is they miss the target of having love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So then that begs the question, if they missed the target, what were they really aiming for? What are false teachers today aiming for? I would say this, beware of any teacher or preacher that is exalting him or herself over God. Because all gospel-centered, truth-laden preaching will have a flavor that screams of humility. It will come from a man or woman whose life screams, I must decrease and he must increase. Beware of any teacher that is motivated by a love of money, always equating God's blessings with more stuff. God might bless you with more stuff. A lot of times what we equate blessing, I thank God that He gave me this new car or this new house or whatever it is. Well, I got to be careful here because I, I don't want to be misunderstood, but... God is ultimately, yes, sovereign and in control of everything. But that may not have been the blessing of God. That may have been the result of you making a decision to go purchase something because you live in a culture that allows you the means to do so. Because your atheist neighbor may have been able to work the same type of job and purchase the same thing that you did. So it may or may not have been a quote-unquote blessing of God because if that is true, if all those material things are blessings from God, what about the person overseas that doesn't have two nickels to rub together, that lives in a house that doesn't have windows and sleeps on mud floors? So a friend of mine used to say, a third of God's people around the world sleep on mud floors every night. Um, so so who is, are we more blessed because of that because of what we have. I think in the context of material blessings, a car given to a missionary so that they can do the work of God more effectively, that is a material blessing. That is a blessing from God. God, that is a real blessing. I don't know that so much of our stuff can be equated with blessings because God may bless you with stuff or He may not. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It's blessed be the name of the Lord. We cannot equate God's blessing with stuff. This is why as gospel-loving people, we are tethered to the text of this book because I must be able to constantly point back at this book because I have no authority outside of this book. My charge to all of us this morning is real simple. Love truth and want more truth in your life. That's it. Love truth. 
Paul continues to write in verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike father and mother, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. Ephesus was a city of mass immorality. You think there's immorality today? Ephesus would make Las Vegas look like a monastery. I mean, that's not too far of an exaggeration. It was very much mirrored in some aspects our culture that is becoming increasingly self-centered and self-driven. And but Ephesus, and I'm not going to go into all of it, but Ephesus is a really, really wicked city. And God has this people, this remnant of people in the midst of this wickedness. The Spirit is speaking to us today through the writings of Paul. All of these things are contrary to sound doctrine and they are against God's law. But we know that just keeping the law does not save us. So Paul, as he always does, Paul always brings the gospel, the good news of Jesus, into the conversation. These things are contrary to sound doctrine. He kind of bullet point lists all of these things and says, don't do this and don't do this and stay away from this and that's fine. Paul's being pastoral in his writing. But then he says, according, you stay away from these things, you abstain from these things according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Everything comes back to the gospel. When the law identifies our sin, and that's what the law does, the law identifies our sin and says, you may not know what's sin because you're blind and groping in darkness and, and unregenerate and uh, standing in judgment for your sin and you're even dead. You're dead in trespasses of sin. You don't know anything. You can't know anything. Now you have the law. The law is for the lawless. It's why we have it. It identifies our sin. It just doesn't save us from our sin. So Paul says here's the law and the law is good uh, for those who are lawless. It exposes us before God and we're made aware of our guilt. There is a a saying that says the ignorance of the law is no excuse. So if a new law is passed and a lot of laws a lot of times will go into effect on January 1st and say there's a new law that's passed and you violate that law and get pulled over or get a citation, you could tell the officer, I didn't know. And probably what he'll say is something to the effect of the ignorance of the law is no excuse. You as a citizen are responsible for knowing what the law is. It's up to you to be part of society to know, I, I can't do this. You know, there's a stop sign there. There's an expectation for you to know that that means that you are to stop the car. Because if you run that stop sign and get pulled over, the cops, you, telling the cop, I didn't know. That may be true. May, there, you may have just started driving and nobody told you that that thing meant that you were supposed to stop. doesn't matter. It was your responsibility to know what the law was. The law identifies our sin. It exposes, exposes us to God and we are made aware because we know the law. We've read the rules. Yep, I'm guilty. But none of that saves us. If you're cited for a crime, if you're charged with a, a crime, you are made aware of the law, but you're not saved. You go to court. And you're in court and, and now you have to face the judge. And the gospel comes into play in the courtroom. It's the gospel that saves us from our sin because we have 
in the drama in the courtroom of life, we have God who is our judge. And we have Satan who is the accuser of the brethren. He's over here. He's the prosecuting attorney. And we have the Bible calls Jesus our advocate. Jesus is here as our defense attorney. So you have this courtroom drama of life. And what happens is the judge, God, stands up and takes off his judgmental robes and robes himself in flesh and becomes our defender. And the accuser of the brethren is screaming guilty. And Jesus Christ then stands up in the courtroom of life and says, I'll take his place. He was justly deserved to die because of what he or she did. I'll take his place. I'll stand and I will suffer the penalty for that. And he did. He suffered the penalty for our sin. It's, I, I hope it never stops sobering us that Jesus died for us. I mean, we've, we just heard it a million times. It's just, it's passe. But no, stop and think about it. Christ died for my sins. My sin put Him on that cross. It wasn't the, just the heinous sins of the people that we read about in the news and say, how could a person do that? It was my sin. It was my nature that put Him on the cross. And it is that good news that Jesus stood in our place at Calvary and paid the price for our sins. That's the good news. Because of the gospel, we walk in righteousness. We are clean and we are pure and we are holy because of the gospel. Frederick Nietzsche, who was a philosopher that railed against Christianity, and usually Nietzsche gets painted in the corner as just this really bad guy who's dangerous to Christianity, and he was. I mean, he was certainly not the friend of Christianity. But sometimes, a lot of times, most times, there is a kernel of truth in the criticism of somebody who rails against you. And in Nietzsche's case, there really was kind of a kernel of truth. And what Nietzsche said about Christianity was this. He said, all of you Christians, you were so hung up on this justification by faith idea that Christ died for you, that your righteousness is Christ. He said, you're so hung up on that idea that you've missed the mark to say, I'm supposed to be like Christ. I'm supposed to emulate Him. I'm supposed to be moral like Him. I'm supposed to be a disciple of the teachings of Christ. And Nietzsche had a real problem with Christianity because he saw people who were easily drawn to the justification by faith. Jesus died for my sins. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be saved because of what Christ did. But Nietzsche struggled with the fact that people didn't really gravitate toward becoming a disciple of Jesus to say, okay, now I live my life not out of a way to be saved. Christ did that for me on the cross. But now because he did that, I live a life uh, that reflects Christ. And I'm going to do everything I can to work hard and I think the, the idea of works a lot of times gets shoved to the side because we're afraid of talking about works. Well, I can't be saved by my works. No, that's true. But it doesn't mean the works aren't important. And this was one of Nietzsche's biggest criticisms of Christianity. And he wasn't entirely wrong about that because once we are saved by grace through faith in Christ according to His Word, to the glory of God, once that happens, we are to become disciples of Jesus Christ. And I think this is what Paul, just reading through his letter, what Paul would say to the church that was at Ephesus. He's writing to Timothy and saying, Timothy, you tell the people this. But now if Paul had the chance to stand in front of a church that was living in a very immoral time, I think this is what Paul would say. I think this is what Paul is saying. Very 
hesitant to always say what Paul would have said or what Jesus would have said. I'm not them. I don't know what they would have said unless I can see it through the Word. If I can see him saying that. Paul is telling Timothy, charge the people to abstain from these things, but do it because you have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank God for the gospel. We are people who are blessed beyond measure for simply, one, knowing this truth, and two, being able to believe and trust in this truth, where so many people don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simply to know this gives us a hope that no one without the gospel can have. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. It is a light to our feet and a a lamp for our path to shine, to give us direction. I thank you for it today. I, I ask you this morning that you would minister to us and bless us throughout this week, Lord. Touch us. Give us grace for this journey. Lord, we pray that our lives would reflect your glory and your image, that you would touch us and bless us this morning and do a work among us that only you can do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.